Well, hello, everyone joining us today. Welcome to CA Church. My name is Brad, and I am our Town Center campus pastor. I want to say a warm welcome to you. And as I say each week, I hope that uh, we will get to see each other face-to-face very soon. As as frustrated as I've been by our current circumstance, our inability to meet in person, uh, hearing accusations back and forth of whether church should be closed down or should be allowed to open, whether churches should defy our government and meet, in the middle of all of that, I am thankful that we are still able to walk through Scripture together, even in this way, and focus our eyes on Jesus. However, I will say, teaching is not the church. Content is not the church. The church is the gathered, active community of Jesus for his glory and for the health of the world. So the moment we are able to gather and serve in whatever capacities we can, we need to do that. So be ready for that. Yearn for that. Stay connected as best you can. And when that opportunity arises, get together and have community. That's what it means to be the church. Until then, I am happy to hear of people in homes and community groups wrestling through the book of Revelation together. Revelation or apocalyptic literature means to literally means to pull back the curtain and to reveal. So the point of the book of Revelation is to let us know that despite what we might see for a time, despite struggle and the, the movements of, of powers on the earth, kingdoms coming and going, the only lasting and proper kingdom is that of the risen lamb, Jesus the Christ. And one day he will return as the revealed king of creation. And as scripture tells us, at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, throughout this series, I've been asked a few times why I'm not going more in depth on every little detail. Every little symbol, scorpion tails, the hair of women, uh, the the, the teeth of lions, snakes as as horse tails. And there's a few reasons. First, I think that when we do that, we miss the bigger story that Revelation is trying to reveal and and get possibly caught up in the the minutiae rather than the grand narrative that we're being given. As one scholar says, in order to dissect something, you have to kill it first. I want to be careful that Revelation stays alive to us, that we get a large, glorious picture of a God who wins and, and live out our lives accordingly. Scholar Brian J. Tabb says it this way. He says, Revelation's theological message is that God sovereignly rules now and will defeat evil, vindicate his suffering church, and consummate his kingdom. And so Revelation's theological message, he says, challenges readers to repent of and resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. It also encourages and strengthens believers to hold fast to their testimony about Jesus, steadfastly endure trials and resiliently hope in God's present and future reign. So that's the main message. Anything that pulls us from that, we need to be careful with. The second reason is that history seems to have taught us that the more we speculate where scripture doesn't, the more likely we are to make mistakes and mishandle the the images of, of Revelation. Fortunately, much of Revelation interprets itself. The seven lampstands are the churches. White-robed people are those who belong to Christ and who will inherit glory. Golden bowls are the prayers of God's people. But where John is not given an interpretation or doesn't have his own interpretation, we need to be very careful because what tends to happen is the story becomes us-focused. Those who disagree uh, with us politically and theologically tend to be the bad guys, and we tend to be at the center of the interpretation rather than Christ. So it it gets in danger of becoming historiocentric or politicallyocentric rather than Christocentric. And we will see here right at the beginning of, of chapter 10 today that the point is to have our eyes centered on God, to lift our eyes towards God. So grab your Bibles 
and let's look at Revelation chapter 10. It's a shorter chapter this week, and we're going to start by just reading verses 1 through to 7, the Word of God to us today. Verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So there's a lot there. First, we're given this image, or John is given this image and shares it with us, of this massive angel. Legs like pillars of fire. He calls out like a lion roaring. He's standing in a way that cannot be ignored. One foot in the sea, one in the land. There's not an area that he's not speaking to where his glory and his might uh, can be ignored. And he comes down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, face like the sun. He is evidently coming from the throne in heaven and sharing the glory of the throne. When you compare this this imagery with with Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, there's so much of the throne that seems to be attached to this angel. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of of an emerald. Verse 5 in chapter 4 says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, some have seen this massive angel as a symbol of Christ himself. You know, the voice of a lion, the lion who is a lamb, reigning over all things with power and might. But Revelation seems to be pretty clear with imagery of, of Jesus, of the Christ. And there seems to be plenty of use in Revelation of angels, just being angels and delivering messages on God's behalf. But I think there's something bigger going on here, and we, we see it throughout Scripture. This, this mighty angel who is so big, powerful, full of glory, is meant to instill in us a sense of the greatness of God, of God's might and power and glory. Often when, when prophets had, had visions that were meant, they, they were meant to give them a fuller understanding of God's power, might, and holiness, they were often given visions of angels that serve God in his holiness. And the witness of these amazing beings were meant to say, man, if, these, if his messengers are this great, how much greater must he be? Ezekiel, a Jewish prophet during the time of the Babylonian exile in 597 BC, he had a vision of God's throne, not unlike what we see in Revelation. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he describes four angelic creatures appearing at the foot of God's throne. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And then he goes on to, to describe the four amazing creatures that appear from this cloud. Verse 13 says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. 
And then in verses 22 to 25, he says, over their heads, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering his body. And when they, they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty a sound of, of tumult, like the, the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. What a powerful picture. Now, here's the point. Before we even get to a description of God, who is indescribable, the reader is already in awe. The reader is overwhelmed. These creatures who are mighty and powerful, it says in verse 25, they stop and they drop their wings, and they are quiet and still in the presence of God. And after 20 verses to describe these angelic creatures, Ezekiel only uses three to describe the indescribable God who is above them. The the point is to say this, if these are the servants, how much greater must he be? In Daniel 10, Daniel describes an angelic figure who who delivers to him a message of revelation uh, like this. Daniel 10, verse 6 says, His body was like beryl, which is like a a, a beryl. It's like a a crystal. His, His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And Daniel does the same thing Isaiah does, Ezekiel does, John does. They're frozen by awe of these angelic beings. Craig Keener says this, he says, the magnitude of such angels helped ancient readers of such accounts, including Revelation, to stand in awe of the God who was infinitely greater than such angels. And this angel in Revelation 10 is not only beautiful, he seems to be massive with one foot in the sea and one on the land with a powerful voice that all hear that that nobody can ignore. This this angel, the messenger of God, this servant messenger descending from, at the, from the side of God's throne is more massive than the Greek and Romans, how they describe their mighty gods. This is just an obedient servant of the true God, and he is far more colossal than Colossus. So what he has to say must be pretty important, right? We've got your attention, John. What is so important that this angel has made this kind of appearance? Verse 2 tells us he holds a small scroll open in his hand. This, the reason that he says small could be to emphasize the massiveness of the angelic being. I, I don't think it means the message of the scroll is unimportant. But before we even get to the scroll, the angel calls out and seven thunders sounded. When we, when we hear thunders, we're usually thinking that God is about to speak or God has spoken. God's voice is often compared or described as, as thunder. And the messages he delivers are often surrounded by the sounds of thunder. Even in the Gospel of John, after God the Father audibly speaks to Jesus, those who who witnessed the event describe it as thunder. John chapter 12, verse 29 says, The crowd stood there and heard it, uh, heard it, said that that it had thundered. They thought they heard thunder when God spoke. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So God speaking in the number seven implies perfection. So this is going to be good stuff. God speaks through this beyond colossal angel. And John, it says in verse four, gets his pen ready. I was about to write it down. This is powerful. And a voice comes from heaven basically saying, nah, do not write this down. Put your pen down, John. Seal up. Apparently John understood what he heard. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. So what was this message of these seven thunders? Do you want to know? Well, too bad. We don't know. 
Under strict orders from the throne, John is restricted from telling us. So anyone who wants to write books about, preach about the, the secret messages of the seven thunders is on very dangerous and presumptuous ground, and I'm not going to be that person. We're not told. Now, this brings up an interesting uh, topic because I found that we don't like that idea, that, that God would keep something from us as if he has no right to withhold information from us. I'm not sure where we would get that impression, um, that, that God will and must disclose everything for our approval, but scripture makes it pretty clear on, on two things about God's revelation. First, God has revealed plenty, and he's revealed what we need for life and salvation. He has revealed himself through scripture, the prophets, ultimately through Jesus. In, in 2 Peter verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." He has also revealed to us what he requires of us who associate ourselves with his mission for the, for the world. With an apocalyptic mission, this is how we ought to live. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The entirety of Scripture is an unearned, unexpected, and unsolicited revelation of God. That he has revealed anything to us is a gift. He has revealed all that is needed for life and salvation. Secondly, about God's revelation, and we should not be surprised by this, there are things he does not and is not required to share with us. God reveals some things and he withholds some things. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. He, he made it clear. There are things that belong to the inner counsel of God, the inner counsel of the Trinity, and he is not obliged and does not share them with us. And this is important, not just for revelation, but in all our interpretation of scripture. And to be honest, it's something that many modern day Christians are not comfortable with. Mystery. We don't like mystery. We like to have lines clearly drawn and, and leave all the guesswork and in reality faith out of the equation. But that kind of Christianity can be a difficult one to live out because the secret, the mysterious things belong to God and he will reveal them when he is good and ready or not at all. He is a God of inapproachable light, wisdom, glory, and we are the created, saved, redeemed, thankful, but finite community of God who are called to trust him. Now, how do we do that in the face of mystery and the unknown, which many of us are walking in right now? Well, he's about to show us. Notice John doesn't push back. The, the vision just moves on. He's told not to write, and the vision moves on. I don't know if he had his pen, started, he started writing, and then he had to get his eraser out, but either way, he stops, and it moves on. In verse 5, the colossal angel raises his right hand to heaven and swears by God that the wait is over. This, again, is an echo of the angel who speaks in Daniel. In Daniel 12, verse 7, it says, And I, I heard the man clothed in linen, this is the angel, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time 
times and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. It was a way, this kind of angel kind of swearing to heaven is a way of saying, God is about to fulfill his promise. I promise. And this is what he swears, what he promises. In, in verse 7, it says, In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. If, if you'll remember, we're, we're actually in the middle of the seven trumpet blasts and their judgments that started way back in, in chapter 8, verse 6. We've been in a bit of a musical pause, and it's about to start up again. The next trumpet, the seventh trumpet, will continue God's work. It would fulfill the mystery of God that had been announced to the prophets, it says. So, so get this point, because I believe it, it's important in political and pandemic and family and work uncertainty. Right after John is told to keep quiet on one message, and we are called to simply trust God with it, he points to his faithfulness throughout history. The fact that he has been revealing and promising throughout history. God calls us to trust him in Mystery, because he has revealed himself to be faithful and powerful in history. We see it in the Hebrew scripture. God has been faithful. And we ultimately see it in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the cosmic Christ. How do we face uncertainty? We, we face it because Jesus has changed our past, present, and future through the cross and the resurrection. The power of sin and death have already been seen to be powerless in the face of Christ. We will celebrate that during Easter next week officially, but Revelation makes it clear that, that that is the celebration and lifeblood of the church and the ultimate framework through which, through which we view uncertainty. The, the revealed mystery described in verse 7, I think, is what we will see in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the full culmination of every tribe and nation around the throne worshiping their creator. The mystery of a new community made up of every community purchased and formed around the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So God creates a mysterious new community. There'll be a swallowing of all cultures and backgrounds and languages into his eternal kingdom. Often in Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of the mystery of God held for ages, but now revealed in the church, a gathering of all people from all nations and tongues, a welcoming in of everyone. In Romans 16, verse 25, he speaks of the mystery kept secret, but now made known to all nations. In Colossians 1, 24 to 29, he speaks of a mystery kept hidden, but now made known to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, verse 6, Paul writes, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, and Paul saw it as his mission to let everyone know that the good news of the gospel, the cross, is, is welcoming in everyone. The creation of a new community, the church, a community unified around the cross and the good news that Jesus reigns and is coming back. And, and then that doesn't wait until that time. We don't wait until that time to be a transformative community. We are now to be an apocalyptic community. That community now that the culture looks at and says, that is what I want. I want to be in a community that is not divided by race, by politics, by social stigmas. 
Where, where, as it says in Galatians 3.28, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. See, the gospel in Paul's mind, in the mind of the apostles, of the apostles was not simply about personal salvation. It was salvation into a new transformative community. And that can be uncomfortable. <laughs> different views, different ideas, Ever look at Facebook posts of a friend, someone you think you know really well, and then they make a political post or a strong opinion on a hot topic, and you go, oh, you're one of those. We've spent so much time together, I had no clue. I didn't know you were part of that camp. The beauty and the mystery of the church to the world is a community that gathers under the banner of Christ, that outside of Christ can have very different views, but are committed to unity and love in spite of them and for his glory. Well, the last bit of this chapter is a powerful image. John is told to take the scroll from the hand of the angel, and it is debated what is in this scroll. Some believe it could be the scroll from the beginning of Revelation, which had seven seals opened by Jesus the Lamb. That makes sense as it now sits open. And, and if that is the case, it, it, it could represent the entire message of Revelation. The message of the seals, the trumpets, the bulls that we haven't looked at yet. If we, if we get all chronological, it could be the remaining message of the book of Revelation. In verses 8 to 11, it says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Sounds like revelations. The image here is again borrowed from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, Ezekiel's given a scroll and a vision and told to consume it and deliver its message to Israel. But in this case, the scroll tastes sweet on the tongue but becomes bitter in the stomach. When we read of, of someone eating the scroll, it's clear in Ezekiel that, that it, it means to take in the message before you deliver it. In Psalm 19.10, taking in God's judgment is compared to, to owning gold or consuming honey. Uh, Psalm 19 verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, your judgments. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb again. Again, in Psalm 119, verse 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But for John, in Revelation 10, although there is a sweetness to the words of God, he is told to prophesy, there is also a bitterness. Because with the good news of the return of Christ, the true king of creation, with the, with the promises of God's coming to put things right, also comes dealing with, with what is wrong. It means judgment, both good and bad. The gospel brings joy, but it also brings sorrow. The gospel, the word of God, the promises of God, the mysteries of God are like honey for those who receive them, give their lives over to them, and bitter to those who reject them. Like Ezekiel, John is asked to consume and deliver the contents of God's message. And like Ezekiel, it was a message that included heartache. In Ezekiel 2, 
verse 10, it says, and he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Guys, there's a, there's a beauty in life and in death for all who accept the risen Christ. And there's a bitterness in life and in death for all those who refuse him. After all caution and all warning that we see throughout Revelation. That's why the continued call of Revelation and the church is for repentance and the realigning of our lives to live in light of this apocalyptic vision. The continued call of God is that of, of a, like the father of the prodigal son returned to me. I, I wait with open arms. I wait with, with forgiveness freely offered. And that's what makes repentance in Christianity such a beautiful offer. On the other side of repentance is always a loving God who is waiting with anticipation for you to come home. On the other side of repentance ought to be the community of the Lamb, which the church, when, which when done right, brings together the repentant from every nation, tribe, and tongue to the feet of our risen Savior. To proclaim, as we see in, in, in chapter 11, verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. What a great day that will be gathered around the Lamb, an explosion of worship from all of creation. Church, I love you. I miss you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless.